I'm Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. When it comes to the state of American politics, how we got here and what the future might hold, my guest for this edition of the Ashcroft in America podcast has a unique perspective. In 2016, Robbie Mook served as campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, securing more votes than for any other candidate in presidential election history other than Barack Obama, but losing to Donald Trump in the Electoral College. I caught up with Robbie at his new perch at Harvard University to talk about the election, the prospect of a second Trump term, fake news, the Russians, but first of all, the memories that stood out from the extraordinary campaign. Well, the first thing to know is it lasted about two years. So uh, it was a very long time and there are a lot of different memories. Uh, when I think back, probably the moments that stand out to me most are, first of all, when we launched the campaign, you know, we'd spent months and months getting ready uh, for that point. Um, and we had very little time officially to organize the campaign because of our, our laws in the United States. So was our website going to work? Were we going to be able to accept donations? Was our video going to uh, get traction online and all that? So that was a that was a very anxious moment. I remember the night of the Iowa caucuses. Again, something we were really hard for, and it was so close. We knew it was going to be. We didn't know if we were going to win, um, and we, we eked that out. I remember some of the key nights in the primary uh, in Nevada. That was a really important caucus for us. South Carolina, uh, Super Tuesday, March 15th. Those are probably the biggest moments from the primary. I obviously remember um, when she finally got the nomination, you know, and that was a historic moment for our country. I was standing on the dais of the convention hall so I was able to look out at all the delegates and I remember the applause that came when she officially got the nomination and um, you know I think that was important to me historically but also the accomplishment of just getting to that point um, and then obviously election night <laughs> which was really long and not very fun uh, and you know how, how complicated that was. When I interviewed Mitt Romney he told me that one of his senior advisors had made him promise never to read the newspapers during the campaign. Hillary is well known as a voracious reader, but from a campaign manager's point of view, what was she like as a candidate? Did she do what she was told? Mm -hmm. Hillary is an incredible listener, and I think that is the reason that she was so successful as a senator and a secretary of state. I think it's the reason that she is so deft at understanding and debating policy. And it's definitely one of her strengths as a candidate. She will listen. And when you organize a briefing or a strategy session, she will start that by uh, asking you to tell her what you think. And that's unusual, frankly, for a lot of politicians. She'll spend about 90% of the time listening and 10% of the time weighing in. Um, so in that regard, she was a phenomenal candidate. The Both the primary and the general election required an enormous amount of discipline. The primary in particular, you have 
50 states and then six territories that are all participating and you have to make decisions about where you're spending your time and your resources and everybody is clamoring and every place matters in contrast to the general election we focus on 15 you know or you know, as, as few as five six seven states um and you know she she was getting calls from states all the time saying you got to do this you got to do this and she had the discipline to say no or at least to you know to, to give the uh, to give the person to some of us to, to explain why we couldn't spend those resources. Um, and look, she, she was dealt a really tough hand and she never felt sorry for herself or dragged the campaign down with self pity, you know, which, which some candidates do from my standpoint, she was a fantastic candidate in a, in a really, really tough environment. Hillary says in her recent book, What Happened, that she would have won the election if FBI Director James Comey had not announced in those final days of the campaign that the Bureau had reopened the investigation into those emails. Do you think it's as clear-cut as that? I can argue this either way, academically. So we're here at Harvard, so I could, ha I could, I could have an academic argument either way. And to be honest with you, I think... I think what matters is that even that we don't know, it shouldn't ever be open for discussion whether the FBI potentially influenced a presidential election. That, that, that alone is unacceptable. And that's why, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I've been frustrated that we're having the wrong debate. So uh, people, people will say, well, if James Comey did that and Hillary still would have lost, then it doesn't matter that he did that. My argument is... I think most people would agree it had some influence, and I would argue the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation should never have any influence, particularly because what he did was a breach of written protocol. I mean, it's actually written down in memos that you are never supposed to speak about an investigation while it's going on, and that if you do not refer something for prosecution, you're never supposed to talk about it, and that rule was broken. This letter that he sent um, and then a few days later says, oh, never mind. I mean, that, that, that behavior is bizarre. And the other element of this that's gotten very little attention that's, that's bizarre and troubling is that, according to the New York Times, his whole reason for weighing in and speaking out was some memo that, that, that they'd heard about through a Russian uh, intelligence source. So the fact that the the FBI director was predicating this on some sort of rumor they'd heard through what I would argue is a very questionable source is that's really troubling too. So I don't think we should be beating up on people or having political witch trials, but we should be asking ourselves, how did this happen and how can we prevent it from happening again? But uh, leaving aside the things you couldn't prevent, like the email yeah. saga and the way the media responded to Trump, is there one thing that you think you and the campaign could have done differently that might have changed the result? Well, I think there are a lot of things that we could have done. Um, first of all, when we were planning the campaign strategy, in retrospect, I really would have played more towards the worst case scenario than maybe what I thought was the, even the likely case scenario. The, the, the dynamics of the race did change very late, very rapidly. Um, but we could have put more resources into 
states like Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, three weeks out for election day, our our margin uh, of victory in Michigan was, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, almost twice what Obama's was in 2012. That led us to say, okay, we don't need to put as many resources there. Let's focus on Florida, North Carolina, and other states. In retrospect, I would have said, no, we're gonna we're gonna double down on those states because we know we know that the numbers have been fluid, and let's play to the worst case scenario. Um, I don't think as a campaign that we had the capacity or an apparatus to truly listen to what was happening on social media. And we were also assuming that a lot of the rumor and conspiracy that was circulating on social media wasn't being taken seriously by the vast majority of voters. And I think in retrospect, it was, it was being taken way more seriously than we imagined. You know, I've been running campaigns for a number of years, and these things always happen. There was always lies. There was always rumor. There was always craziness in social media. And by and large, voters didn't pick up on it. And that, that was new and different this time. And so I think that's something um, that campaign practitioners really need to think about uh, moving forward. While President Trump's opponents seem to be newly outraged uh, every day by practically everything he does, my research around the anniversary of the election found that those who voted for him are largely happy with how he's doing so far. I mean, what do you think it will take to change people's minds about him? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand that voters are rightfully very angry at institutions in this country. They're angry at Wall Street, they're angry at the federal government, they're angry at elected officials and politicians because they feel like the political system and the political culture doesn't serve them, it serves other interests. So that being the case, when Donald Trump goes out there and lashes out at people, to many voters is simply reminding them that he wants to tear the system down too. And as a result of that, people think he's on their side and he's fighting for them. Now that's not the case. And actually this tax bill is a perfect example of where Donald Trump is doing a very good job of taking care of himself and people like him who are very well off. The middle class is literally paying for their, their taxes will go up so that people like Donald Trump will see their taxes go down. And that's wrong. And that is as good proof as any that he is not on the side of working people. But part of the reason that this belief in him has not been undermined, I think, is because the economy continues to do really well. And as long as that's the case, I think it's, it's actually going to be challenging for Democrats to try to prove that we are on their, that in fact, we are on their side, not Donald Trump. But this tax bill, I think, is a, is a perfect example and is an important proof point. And we as a party need to come together and really focus on that argument. You know, I also, Robbie, I found in uh, the anniversary research that I did um, in the last few weeks that those who want an alternative to Trump are not yet seeing much in the way of new ideas or leaders on the Democratic uh, side. What do you think those ideas need to be and who are the leaders and who can you see successfully challenging Trump in 2020? Well, I think it's too early to start pointing to individuals yet, in part because the primary is actually a really good instrument for testing and vetting candidates. And actually, 
people forget this, but it is true. The Democratic primary electorate chooses this nominee. And, uh, and I certainly hope as many people as possible exercise that right and participate in that primary. I would say I think it's potentially about the people we don't know about yet as much as it is about the people we do know about. And so I would... I would expect a lot of surprising people to enter that contest and, and that that field will shape up and evolve in, in ways that we couldn't anticipate now. I do think an important thing that Democrats need to keep in mind is that if we're going to prove to voters that we're on their side, we have to drive the message. We can't let Donald Trump drive the message. And that is a really hard thing to do. And I don't think people always appreciate and understand that. I think we could very easily fall into a situation where Donald Trump's Twitter account has more influence about what Democrats are talking about every day than Democrats do. And um, we need to be really careful of that moving forward. I mean, one thing that often happens with defeated parties, and we've certainly seen that in the UK over the years, is that instead of reaching out, they can turn in on themselves and choose policies and leaders who appeal to their own activists at the expense of the wider electorate. And do you think there's a risk that next time around the Democrats could pile up votes like never before in places like New York, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but neglect the voters who actually back Donald Trump and see a repeat of the 2016 mm -hmm. result? Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, we have to acknowledge every day that Donald Trump could be reelected as president. I think way too many people think there's no way this guy can win. Um, he can. Now, if we're lucky, we'll be in a situation where he is so unpopular that it's easy for a Democrat to win. But that would be a horrible presumption uh, for us to make. And the presidential contest isn't, as we have seen now multiple times, about winning the popular vote. It's about winning the Electoral College. And I think we need to start looking at polling differently coming out of the last election. I don't think it's about where you are at a snapshot in time. I think it's about what the potential spread is. So what's your best case and what's your worst case? And in some of these states where voters tend to get their news more from social media, um, you will see the race as much more fluid and there's much more opportunity for someone to disrupt the dynamics of the race. And so I think when we look at the map and make the assessments like you're talking about, okay, not just, not just numbers, but where do, where does our vote need to come from? I think we need to, uh, we need to look at that spread a lot more carefully and imagine a worst case scenario. Listening to democratic voters and leaders since the election, I sometimes have the impression that they know in their heads that many, voted for Trump because they felt let down and left behind, as we've just talked about, and that they have to try and empathize. But in their hearts, they feel these people have made a bad choice for bad reasons. Hillary uh, says in her book that he, quote, appealed to the ugliest impulses in our national character, unquote, and that all 63 million of his voters were at least prepared to overlook things about Trump that his opponents regard as totally unacceptable. Do you think many Democrats are actually disappointed with these voters? And if so, doesn't that make it all the harder for them to put their heart and soul into trying to win mm. them back? 
That's a really interesting question. I think that, I think we have an advantage coming into this next election. And that advantage is that Donald Trump is in charge and accountable. And that this election can and should be a referendum on whether people are happy with the way things are going under Donald Trump. The challenge that we had last cycle was that Democrats had controlled the White House for eight years, and we hadn't elected a third-term Democrat since Harry Truman. So there's not a good historical precedent. And there's a reason for that, because after a time, your base becomes complacent in some cases, but also anything that the voters are agitated about, they're really blaming you for. They're looking, they're, they're, they're almost um, pre-programmed for that fresh start. And, and similarly for Republicans, it's very, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush won a third term, but, but, but they haven't won a third term either uh, in, in recent history. Um, so the voters were willing to take a big risk on Trump. Their desire for change was so tremendous. Their frustration with the status quo was such that they said, yes, there's a lot about him I don't like, but I'll take the risk. And so for Democrats this time, we don't have to defend the status quo. It's not on us the way it was last time. We can get out there and talk about the country we want to create. We don't have to spend as much time defending the country the way it is. And that is a strategic advantage. So I'm, I'm less concerned about what you're talking about. I think we have a lot to offer these voters. We just can't let the campaign be a reaction to Trump. It needs to be a, a proactive articulation of what we want to get done. Hillary observes in her book that listening to Trump on the campaign trail, quote, it almost felt like there was no such thing as truth anymore. And we also hear from people like uh, Charlie Sykes, the former conservative talk radio host, that many voters on the right have come to distrust practically everything they hear from what were once thought of as respectable news sources. Do you think the idea of fake news is now a permanent fixture in American politics? And if so, what do you think can be done to overcome it, or at least to get people on opposing sides to agree on a common set of facts? Yeah. This is really, really hard. Um, rumor and innuendo and lies have been part of politics uh, and, and social life for time eternal. I was at a conference last night and somebody reminded us that the uh, Spanish-American uh, war uh, was fought over the sinking of the USS Maine. And that was basically fake news, you know, that the Spanish had, had sunk that ship. And we started a war over it. So these things are new. However, the internet creates uh, an environment that incubates and spreads the, these falsehoods very quickly. That's the challenge that we need to face. So I think there are two aspects to this. First, I think people, even today, look at the information they're getting over their news feeds differently than they did last year. People, people recognize and realize that there are foreign countries and intelligence operatives trying to influence what they think. So I think over time, people will take these things with a grain of salt, the way when someone calls you up on the phone today and starts making a sales pitch or telling you something that sounds too good to be true, you're probably a little bit uh, skeptical because people, as soon as the telephone started, were abusing that. Um, we saw with the uh, creation of directly mailed magazines and broadsheets back at the turn of the century, when there was also technological disruption and economic anxiety, that was also a time when a lot of fake information and hysteria spread. So 
I think we're in a particular historic moment and these platforms definitely have a responsibility to help. I think the best thing that we could start to do is disclaim as much of this as we can. So um, if, uh, if you are working for a foreign uh, intelligence agency or a foreign government, you should be required to disclose that. At least the social media platform should be asking that question and they should be disclaiming, you know, what you post. That's not going to deal with everything. You know, the intelligence agencies will just find a more clever way to get around that. But, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't create a truth police. It's impossible to have a board of people decide what's true and what's not true. That's not going to happen. But I think at least uh, we should be pressuring these platforms to, to disclaim as much as we can. You, you touched on it, but uh, turning finally to uh, Russian interference in the election, how much of a difference do you think this made to the outcome? And what do you think the Mueller investigation into links between Russia and the Trump campaign will eventually turn up? Well, this is another example where I don't think it matters whether it was a deciding factor in the election or not. I think the fact of the matter is some people out there got information that the Russians deliberately put into the bloodstream that was misleading. And, and it was done in an effort to help Donald Trump win. And we simply can't have foreign governments running campaigns the way Americans do. You know, it's, it's the analogy, I actually wrote a piece in The Guardian. The analogy I made is it's like a super PAC. All of a sudden, the Russian government has a super PAC and they're coming in and spending money and delivering messages to try to influence the election. But the ultimate goal of this is to undermine trust and faith in democratic society and the democratic system. That's what Putin wants to uh, uh, divide us. He wants us to fall into discord and disarray. He wants to dissolve international institutions like NATO, the UN, and so on. Um, so we need to look at this not so much as an election issue, but as a defense of our constitution, of our country. Um, I think Democrats and Republicans should see uh, eye to eye on this issue. Um, we can't discuss it in the context of the 2016 election. We need to discuss it in the context of the 2018 and the 2020 and upcoming elections. We have to do that. Um, I don't know what's going to come out. Robert Mueller will find that. I do think, though, this is an important warning for anybody who works in campaigns moving forward. Don't even flirt with the idea of inviting foreign uh, foreign governments or the agents of foreign governments into your campaign. They just don't have a place, you know. And there are good uh, protocols if you are elected to engage with foreign governments. Just wait until the election's over and then start engaging. Um, the 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 only people who vote in our elections are Americans, so just focus on Americans, and then you can deal with these other folks later. And and um, it's not okay to take information, stolen emails from from foreign governments, or frankly from anybody. You know, um, and the quicker we agree on that, uh, and all parties agree on that, uh, the better off we'll be. Not about the Hillary campaign, but we are at Harvard's. Uh Harvard's Kennedy School of Government at the moment, uh, Robbie, and while you're looking here at how to protect democratic institutions from cyber attacks, tell us a little bit about how you see that threat and the work that you're doing here at Harvard to uh, help prevent and counter that. Yeah, so after the election, I was concerned about two things. One, that the issue wasn't really getting much attention. It seems obvious now that the Russians were involved in our election, but it was I think it was considered more of a theory uh, 
uh, in December of last year, let's say. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Matt Rhodes, who ran Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. And he and I were talking about this issue. And the Romney campaign had been hacked by the Chinese, actually. And so we, we found common ground on this issue. And both of us were concerned that that the issue was being litigated in the past, in 2016, and it was being litigated through a partisan lens. And we didn't think that Democrats or Republicans should see this issue differently. We should just keep these folks out of our elections, period. So we were fortunate enough to get linked up with Eric Rosenbach, who's running the Belfer Center here at Harvard. They, uh, he has is a, a leading expert here in the United States on cybersecurity um, and has been a tremendous... Uh, host and partner in developing our project here. And we're doing two things. We're developing practical tools for campaigns on how to better secure themselves from, from hacking. Uh, we just put out a, a playbook uh, that anybody without any technical background can read and use to secure their campaign, or really any organization, I would argue. Um, that's at belfercenter.org forward slash cyber playbook. Anybody can access that. Um, and actually today we have election officials from across the United States. We've got seven states here and we're actually putting them through a cybersecurity um, tabletop exercise where they're, they are, they are put in a room and they are running election sites on election day. And we have all kinds of influence uh, operations, information operations and hacking that's going on. And what we're trying to help them do is practice just managing this. It's going to happen. And so it's just as important what they do to deal with it when it takes place as it is what they do to prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, and what's been amazing to me is I was just in this room this morning. You have Republicans that are uh, as conservative as you could ever imagine. Uh, you had me. You have liberal Democrats in that room. And we were engaging with each other seamlessly. And we were having a very focused, organized conversation and, um, and working together. So I have more confidence than I ever have before, not just that we can deal with cybersecurity and the integrity of our elections in a bipartisan way. I think there's a lot of other things we could do. <laughs> if, if we just get the right people in the room and, and focus less on what we're saying to cable news and more on how we are helping people and, and also reminding each other every day that we're all Americans, that we all love our country, um, that we believe in democracy and our constitution and a, and a free world. And when we start from that place, boy, we have a lot in common with each other. And so I, I, I hope um, we can start creating that culture in other aspects of our society. Well, common ground, Robbie, is always a good place to, uh, to stop and interview. <laughs> but thank you very much indeed thank for you. sparing the time uh, this morning. And I do appreciate it. My pleasure.